Hey guys, welcome to episode 49 of The True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm Joan. So before we start, we wanted to thank everyone for the reviews that you've been leaving on iTunes and all other platforms. It's incredible to hear great feedback and we just want to make sure that we thank you every time. I have to admit right here, right now, that when I go to look at reviews, whether that be on iTunes or anywhere else for that matter, I'm like a kid on Christmas morning, not going to lie. Yeah, he when goes, they come in he and checks good. it every day. Yeah, when they're good <laughs> and I'm like, oh, wow, that's so great. Like, I'm so happy. So thank you for that. Yeah, it's exciting to see that our listenership is, is growing. So we appreciate that and we want to thank you so, so much. So today we're going to cover a topic that we never have covered before. We're going to talk about a spree killer. So before we get into it, let's just go over what a spree killer is. A person who kills multiple people in a short period of time with no cooling off period, or a very brief one, is known as a spree killer, or a mass murderer, or a rampage killer. The person that commits this type of murder usually feels like they've become alienated from society and that they no longer have any connection to the rest of humanity. So in most cases, the perpetrator feels cornered, as if the world is crashing in around them. They want to kill themselves, however, they don't just want to kill themselves, they want to take as many people they can with them. Now this is for two reasons, either because they want to save the people they love from the world or from life or whatever they think is going on, or because they're angry and they want to make them suffer. Of course, there's another kind of mass murderer, which is labeled a killer on the run, one who kills because they're evading police and we're not really going to talk about this type of mass murderer today, so we're not going to be going into the psychology of that kind of killer. We're going to talk about the one I mentioned before. Once their killing spree is over, the killer or killers most often commit suicide or force law enforcement to do so, and that's something that's known as suicide by cop. This occurs because this kind of killer prefers death over the prospect of incarceration or institutionalization. Mass murderers usually focus their attention on certain demographic or specific targets that may have wronged them. And this is kind of going to get into the topic of like school shooters, things like that. Um, They most often use weapons like firearms because they're able to do a lot of damage in a short period of time. The spree killer we're going to discuss comes with a lot of baggage. And he's not just a spree killer. He is more specifically classified as a spree killer, a workplace shooter, and a family annihilator. But we will get into what that means later. Although the first two are self-explanatory, the third isn't really. So all over the world, there's cases of spree killers. Some of them are terrorists, some school shooters, and other workplace shooters. What they all share in common is the fact that they destroy the world's sense of peace. People going about their everyday lives are murdered, their lives senselessly stolen, families affected forever, and a public that's now afraid to go about their daily lives. I chose this week's killer not because he's just a spree killer, but because he reminds us that every murderer, no matter how cut and dry their case seems to be, is very complex in nature. There is no other better example of this than Mark Barton. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil. 
in some form or another. Are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. Mark Oren Barton was born on April 2nd, 1955, to parents who were both associated with the United States Air Force. Barton described his childhood to be rootless, as the family was forced to move around, often because of the profession of his parents. He had a hard time making friends, and being an only child, this led to a very lonely upbringing. In high school and college, he worked as a manual laborer, and he attended two different colleges, but ended up at the University of South Carolina, where he graduated with a chemistry degree in 1979. It was the year of his graduation that he married fellow student Deborah Spivy. He had met her while he was working as a night auditor at a local hotel. For a few years, the couple lived in Atlanta, where Barton had a job testing cleaning compounds. Looking for a better future, the couple moved to Texarkana, Texas, and this is where they had their son, Matthew David Barton. A year after Matthew's birth, Barton started a manufacturing company with some friends in 1988, and this was called TLC Manufacturing. Barton was named president, and his salary was marked at $86,000 a year. And in 1988, that was a lot of money. The equivalent of it today would be $185,000 a year. I wish I was making 185000 a year. <laughs> yeah, I think that was a good move for that family. Oh, yeah. So it seems to be like a great deal. However, something goes down because two years after being named president, Barton is fired from the company. And to make it sound better to the suppliers, the company officials state that it was just a parting of ways. Now, we know this couldn't be further from the truth because the day after Barton was let go, someone broke into the offices of TLC Manufacturing and erased computer files and stole secret formulas. That's pretty intense. I mean, that is intense. I mean, it's not just an easy thing to do. Like, people off the street wouldn't know to go to TLC, you know, manufacturing and steal their shit. <laughs> well, it was quite clear that the person that yeah. broke in definitely had an agenda. Oh, yeah. So the following morning, the company called the police, informing them that they had been robbed. And more than likely, it was Barton, as he was not happy with the fact that the company had fired him. Police went into Barton's home and arrested the 35-year-old man on burglary charges. However, based on the report filed regarding the robbery claim, Barton says that the act was not intended for the theft of the product formula, but to hide kickbacks, discrepancies in inventory, or the possible sale of chemicals for drug activity. The same day Barton revealed this in an interview, a board member from TLC Manufacturing Company called law enforcement to inform them that they were dropping all charges against Barton. So it's so interesting when you do research in these cases, you see kind of weird things pop up from time to time. And in reading between the lines, what I think happened was Barton was let go as president because he was doing these things. So it seemed like the $185,000 or $86,000 it was back then wasn't enough for him. So he was making money on the side through kickbacks and using the chemicals that they were manufacturing to give to dr drug dealers, which is super shady business. And that is why they let him go as president, but I guess to hide the fact that he was doing these things or to be 
charged with anything further, he went in and erased all evidence of what he was doing while he was president of the company. So let me just make a quick little observation of my own. I think that him going back and taking all those, all the, you know, the receipts or, or whatever, paperwork of mm-hmm. kickbacks and all the other drug paraphernalia or anything to make drugs. I think he did it because he knows that the company isn't going to press further charges or even bring him up on anything further because they already have probably stock investors or stuff that they don't want this to get out. If he goes and gets arrested uh, or further, you know, further in, he gets charged. Right. They don't want that because they, they want it to be completely clean. Well, I think he, what he was doing was that was his insurance policy by going in and erasing everything because no, they were never going to do that. They wanted to save face and not mention it so they didn't have any problems with their distributors. But he didn't trust the company, so he said, let me go in and erase everything because I don't want anyone holding anything over my head. That's what I think the move was. It's a little weird, though. Well, because he doesn't want anyone to have anything on him. Right, but I mean, everyone everyone's going to know that it was him that did it. You know what I mean? Well, it was kept really quiet. The only reason we know about what happened was because what he's going to do in the future. Otherwise, uh, everything would have been kept under under wraps. Gotcha. But it's because when you dig into the police records of Mark Barton and the several times he is going to talk to law enforcement, this is one of them. So the company saying, okay, we're dropping charges proves that, yes, this was taking place. Right, And right. to save face, they're saying, okay, let's let this go away. So after this incident with the manufacturing company, Barton is going to move his family to Georgia, where they welcome their daughter, Michelle Elizabeth, to the family in 1991. In Georgia, he started another manufacturing firm that he compared to being as boring and simple as a paper route. He wanted something more exciting. And I think that kind of talks to what he did at the other company because he seems to have this need to seek excitement throughout his life. And like he's never satisfied with the situation that he's in. That's Barton's number one problem so far is that he's never satisfied. Well, I think it's a it's a character flaw and a lot of people have it, you know. Yeah, it's definitely going to become his fatal flaw. Yeah. <laughs> So he's just a risk taker is what I'm saying. Like he's not happy unless there's something dangerous happening in his life. It's like a risk reward type of thing. Yeah. There needs to be risk. Psychologists say that there are some people who are just in need of risk seeking behavior to be satisfied. Right. And that's he's one of them. So he took his second job as a salesman for a chemical company. And it was with this job that he met a young receptionist named Leanne Lang. Leanne was a married woman, but she made it very clear that she was unhappy in her marriage and that she liked older men. Because at the time that they meet, I believe she's 20 years old and he's now 37. Okay. I mean, we've seen worse or a bigger disparity in in age. Yes, we have. In age, so. Well, I I don't think it's really the age problem. I think it's the married problem. They're Uh, both married. That's true. Yeah. So before we get into just what is going to start taking place between these two colleagues, let's take a break and hear a word from our newest sponsor, Simple Health. Ladies, listen up. We have a new sponsor that is going to save you a lot of time and money. They're called Simple Health. 
As the name suggests, they're here to make your healthcare well and simple, starting with online birth control. Yep, you heard that right. Birth control is getting a much-needed 21st century upgrade. With Simple Health, you can get your birth control prescribed online and delivered to your door for free. Whether you're already on birth control, looking to get back on, or want to try it for the first time, Simple Health will take care of you. Here's how it works. Fill out an online health profile and answer some questions to find the best birth control for you. A doctor reviews if you're a good candidate for birth control, recommends a product, and writes a prescription. Then your birth control ships to your door on a reoccurring schedule, no interruptions. It's free with most insurance plans and starts at $15 a month without insurance. This is so convenient for me. One of the biggest hassles of birth control is forgetting your prescription and missing a few days of taking a pill or pills will completely throw me off balance. So with Simple Health, I don't even have to think because I know my prescription is waiting for me at my doorstep when it's time to renew. No more doctor's offices, waiting rooms, or pharmacy lines. Get birth control prescribed, renewed, and delivered from wherever you are on your schedule. Simple Health makes the complicated process of birth control, well, simple. Accessible access to a doctor, insurance status, or cost should never prevent a woman from getting birth control. Simple Health helps cut those barriers down for all women. Birth control is a personal choice, and Simple Health is a discreet and comfortable option. No labels on the shipment or telling anyone your sexual activity. Just you and your phone at home. Simple Health doctors can prescribe over 100 brands of the pill, as well as the patch or ring. They personalize a recommendation based on your health profile and personal preferences. The annual prescription is usually $20, but our listeners get to try Simple Health for free with our code. Don't miss your chance to try this service for free. Again, our listeners get the $20 prescription fee waived by going to simplehealth.com TCC or entering code TCC at checkout. Again, you get the $20 prescription fee waived by going to simplehealth.com TCC or entering code TCC at checkout. Okay, let's get back to our show. In May of 1993, Barton began having an affair with 20-year-old Leanne. He really was not doing a good job of hiding the affair as he went out and bought all new clothes and started using a tanning bed. Really? (laughs) (laughs) I just thought that was a little ridiculous, using a tanning bed. Hey, listen, he has to get crispy for the ladies. I guess so. So Mark is going to explain that Deborah becomes suspicious that he's having an affair. And I think that's because he's making it like entirely obvious that he's having an affair. Because again, I think what excites him is the affair part of it. Like we said, like that thrill-seeking danger of getting caught, that's what excites him. Yeah, and once again, there's a lot of people like that. So this is totally his M.O. Right. Just like he said, he wasn't satisfied with his job. He wanted something dangerous. Well, now... He did find that dangerous side by starting an affair with it within his second job. Within the same week he began the affair with Leanne, Barton took out a life insurance policy on his wife. And you know it's always the beginning of the end when the life insurance policy comes up. It's shady. It's Well, I mean, I guess it, life insurance policies aren't shady, but when someone's a stay-at-home wife and you're trying to take out a $1 million policy which is what he tries to do, that's shady. 
Well, it's also especially shady. when you're having an affair. Right. Well, the, well, you just took the words sorry, out of my mouth. Sorry, sorry. But that's true though, especially when you're having an affair with a 20 year old woman. Why are you getting your wife a life insurance <laughs> policy? It's a really bad timing there, Very Barton. Bizarre. So he can't afford the premium payments on the one million dollars, so he's going to settle for six hundred thousand. And he justifies the purchase by saying that Deborah thinks of herself as being very important as she was the wife of a company president. So it's almost like it's like a dig to her, too, at the same time. So now the only thing you need to know is Barton has this $600,000 life insurance policy on his wife, Deborah, whom he's cheating on. So the timing, though strange, because he was beginning his affair with Leanne, and I just want to make clear that this affair, it's not just like a one-time mistake thing. Barton seems to be all in with the young receptionist. One month into the affair, in June of 1993, Barton takes a road trip with Leanne from Georgia to Charlotte, North Carolina. He told his family he was going on a sale and would need the week to be away. Barton and Leanne met Leanne's friends for dinner. He told them at dinner that he had never been more in love with anyone and that he would be free to marry Leanne by early October. I wonder if they planned our wedding date. Wouldn't that be lovely to share the same day? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) The two returned to Georgia with the idea that they would be wed once they left their spouses. And Leanne is going to take the first step by ending her marriage and moving in with her sister. Wow. Yeah, I mean, these are commitments now. So he's promising to leave Deborah, and Leanne has already taken action and steps towards leaving her husband. And by all accounts, I know that, like, Barton seems like this, like, older guy, but he is good-looking. He's, well, now he's very tan, and he's got new clothes. He's 6'5". He stays in shape. So it's not, like, I don't know, I can't explain it. It's not, like, just this, like... Like, the sex appeal? Like, I guess there is sex appeal for for a 20-year-old girl to Barton, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, it's not like he was, like, in his 50s or something. I don't want to depict him as being, like creepy looking he wasn't he was very he was good looking so as leanne is signing the lease on her new apartment deborah barton is packing for her yearly labor day trip to her mother's lakeside trailer in alabama barton told his wife that he was going to stick back with the children for this trip as their son had a boy scouting event that weekend and barton was actually really involved in his son's boy scouting events he was like a scout master that's pretty cool yeah credit kudos to to barton for that barton yeah i feel like in knowing a lot of true crime stories the amount of boy scout leaders that have committed murder is pretty high oh my god pretty high (laughs) it it is a little high i don't know if there's like a weird correlation there but that's kind of like that movie we recently watched i can't remember the name that's kind of bad but it was with the guy from uh, american horror story remember it was like, uh, you know, who's like the, the Cub Scout leader? Oh. I really wish we knew the name of that, actually. Hold on. Time out. Okay. We're back. After a short break, we have to remember that it's the Clover Hitch Killer. Yes. It took a, a bunch of back and forth, but <laughs> we got it. And that movie is actually excellent, and it's kind of the same thing. Such a good movie. Although I think we might have just given away the ending, maybe. Not really. No, not really. It is such a good movie. I actually had to force John to watch it. That's true. It, I have this weird tendency to love, like... B-list, even C-list horror movies. So I have to convince him every time something looks a little low budget. But it is 
um, it's a really it's creepy. But if you like this podcast, you'll like that. I'll be honest. I think maybe it's just because I'm too mainstream. I don't know. But I just some of the movies are just so terrible. But anyway, no, it's very it's BTK. That's who it is supposed to be. It's it's pretty cool. But anyway. (laughs) So, yes. So Barton, very Clover Hitchy. Yes. I will say. Very Clover Hitchy. Very much so. But that is his excuse to not going on this trip with his wife to Alabama to see his mother-in-law is that he has a Boy Scout thing to attend with his son. So Deborah's going to leave to meet her mother at the Riverside Campground at Weiss Lake in Northeast Alabama. After no one had heard from the two women for several days, Barton and Deborah's father are going to contact police. They agree to make a wellness call on the trailer. And from the outside, everything appeared to be all right. Police, after getting no response from the women, get permission from Deborah's father to enter the trailer by force over the phone. He gives them permission over the phone. They don't enter by force over the phone. Just wanted to clarify that. Sorry to mess up that mood. In the trailer, Deborah, 36, and her mother, Eloise, 59, were found bludgeoned to death with what would later be determined to be a sharp, blunt object like an axe. The murder weapon was never recovered. The camper showed no signs of forced entry, but items were missing. The killer took two rings from the scene. And this was bizarre because they left out jewelry strewn all about the trailer, as well as a thirty-two caliber revolver and an envelope with $600 cash in it left on the kitchen counter. Now, this is pretty interesting because these two women were bludgeoned to death. So the fact that they had a gun accessible to them out on a kitchen counter tells us two things. First, they were comfortable with the person who went into the trailer because there's no signs of entry and neither woman went for the gun and that it had to have happened fast because no one was able to reach for the gun. Oh, yeah. I mean, those are all really good, like, assessments. And I think it's very symbolic that the rings were taken. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's bizarre when you have money in an envelope and you have other, like, items that could have been taken and nothing was taken. There was no sexual assault. It was personal. Sounds personal, right? I mean, it, it has to be someone they know and it has to be a personal agenda for them not to take other items in the house. Right. And no other trailers were broken into in the area. And there were several because obviously it's a lake community. This is where people go to vacation. So, yes, vacation places are hit for robberies but this clearly wasn't a robbery it was something that was personal yeah so of course barton was immediately considered a suspect in the murder of his wife and mother-in-law but the funeral services for the two women occurred immediately as the bodies had been badly decomposed at the time of recovery so for like a few days they were in the alabama heat it, was, it wasn't good. So not a lot of evidence was able to be recovered from the bodies. The only thing they know is that the women were struck in the head several times with an object that tends to correlate with an axe. After giving the family time to grieve and to hold ceremonies, the police sweep into Barton's home less than an hour after the funeral. They searched for evidence and blood residue using a luminol test. Police recall that it was strange that Barton comments that he knows what luminol is based off of an episode of Columbo. But he's a 
chemistry major. And he also deals with chemicals right, like he makes, from both processing plants. He's a plants. chemical manufacturer. Yeah, I don't so, know. So when you work in the field, like that's kind of weird. During the investigation, police find blood in Barton's car, both on the ignition switch and on his seatbelt, which is very Stephen Avery-esque. Like that yeah, is right? the same place <laughs> as blood was found in Avery's car. So this is really suspicious because it is so over like if there could be like an exclamation point over Barton's head at this point as to who murdered his wife it it, it would be because he's having an affair he just took out a life insurance policy on his wife he's told his girlfriend and her friends that he's going to be leaving his wife soon you we know that he's into getting money because of his past actions he had something come up that he couldn't go on this trip and that, and now there's blood being found in his car. So if it wasn't him, it's seeming very likely that he at least hired somebody to do this. Well, yeah, you got to say to yourself two things. One, he set up the most obvious, like, I guess it kind of goes to the story that we're telling here. Where could he have just made it super obvious so it wouldn't be so him? So it wouldn't be him? Like in Basic Instinct? Like, yeah. why would I write a book about how a murder was committed? You know what committed? I'm saying? Because, like, yeah. it's following his trend where he likes risk. It's it's just, like, it's Yeah, like, I think this is exciting him, this yes. whole situation. So, like, the cops would be like, this fucking guy did it. Like, look at everything we have against him that could, you know, work to, for, in our favor. And it just seems too good to be true. You know what yeah. I'm saying? It is. It's really complicated, especially because now looking back, this is 1993. So all of the testing that we have today isn't really around back then. So they, they don't, they're limited in the evidence that they can find police. But it's so overwhelmingly obvious. And police feel like Barton is their guy. And like you said, if he hired somebody, we can kind of look to, okay, well, if he did... He obviously must know someone shady because he was giving chemicals to drug dealers. Oh, that's a really good point. He may have some people from his past yes. that he could have asked to do this. You know, so if he didn't do it himself, then he had someone do it because right. he knows the connection would be the chemicals with the drugs. Mm-hmm. You know? it's an interesting point. So now Barton is finding himself having to explain where this blood came from. And he's telling law enforcement that he doesn't even remember bleeding in his car. So when the police confronted him about the blood, he actually got really defensive and said that if they were going to arrest him, that they would have to do it then. But if they weren't going to, that he wasn't going to answer any more questions. Police chose that it was best to complete their search and then just leave the home. Barton actually takes it upon himself to drive to Northeast Alabama to the law enforcement agency and offer an excuse as to how the blood got on the seatbelt. He told police he cut his finger to the bone the summer before during like a boy scouting thing and that it must be leftover blood that they found in the car. Police told him, okay, that makes complete sense. We could see how that could happen. All you have to do is give us a blood sample or a saliva sample so we can match it to the blood found in the car. However, Barton is going to refuse to do so. Okay, said the detective. Would you be willing to take a lie detector test? And again, Barton refuses. So it's like, you're not doing yourself any favors here, buddy. You're, you're so clearly obvious. And you would think if your wife got bludgeoned to death and your mother-in-law did as well, 
And that could have easily been you and your children that you would want to catch this person. And in order to eliminate yourself as a suspect, you would give a sample. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. Like you said, you'd do anything you could to be helpful. So for him not to take a lie detector test, for him not to give a blood sample to go to test the DNA, I don't know, kind of incriminates him further. Yeah, it's it's really really interesting. So because Barton needed the car to take his children to and from school, it was returned to him. Before police could do any further testing on the blood traces that were found in the car. Like, there wasn't obviously visually blood in the car, but you could tell that blood had been there. Which also can go to the fact that he tried to clean it up, maybe? Yeah. Okay. So when the investigators asked Barton if they could test the blood samples again, he told them that he had accidentally spilled soda all over the front seat. And a chemist would know that the acid in the soda would destroy the validity of whatever sample they collected afterwards. See, How do you accidentally spill soda? Or, like, I've never done... I mean, what, and what did he and fucking, I spill everything. Okay, but what did he fucking do? Like, shake up a bottle of soda and just, like, <laughs> throw it all over yeah. the car? I mean, look... He knew. Uh, okay, like, that's genius, but guess what? You're already in a fucking hole already. Like, everything <laughs> that you... Like, you've denied everything. So, like, even though that's fucking genius, you're an idiot because... No, I know, I know. I'm just saying that, like, it is so clear that he's trying to cover something up here. Oh, yeah. but But another thing, too, like, it's... I'm surprised that the police even let him like take the car, take the car yeah. because that's prime evidence. I think I guess... they were dealing with the fact of, okay, we're either dealing with a killer here or a grieving husband and family, and they wanted to allow the family to return to some type of normalcy. Or maybe the children. they just thought they had more on them and they didn't need the car. I don't know. Yeah. Well, investigators were at a loss here. They had no murder weapon, no fingerprints, no physical evidence. They had a strong bone-chilling feeling that Barton was guilty of brutally bludgeoning to death his wife and his mother-in-law. But their hands were tied, and there was nothing they could do. And fueling the feelings of investigators was the fact that within a week of Deborah's death, Leanne began spending most nights at the Barton house with Mark and his children. This is something that's going to infuriate Barton's father-in-law, Bill Spivey. During an interview with the Atlanta Journal, he's going to admit that Barton was a perfect son-in-law until this. It was like he could care less about the murder of the girls, as he said. And that is where the relationship just completely ran cold. He said, I had no problem with Barton before, but now I want nothing to do with him. I don't blame him. (laughs) No. It was clear that Bill Spivey did not want Leanne to be the one raising his grandchildren or even Mark Barton, for that matter. So, it's now we're, there's a custody battle that's going to ensue between Bill Spivey and Mark Barton, but because there is no evidence against him, Mark, of, and he has been a, a seemingly a, a wonderful father, at, up to this point, he's going to maintain custody. Life seems to move on quite quickly for Barton and Leanne. One month after Deborah's murder, Leanne moves into Barton's home. Six months later, the two get married and start a new life together by moving to Morrow, Georgia. This was a new start for the couple, where no one knew their past. This was a new start for the couple, where no one knew their past. However, as shocking as this might be, the marriage between Barton and Leanne was not 
going as well as they may have thought it would. It's no happily ever after with this one. Neighbors told the media that the couple was always seen fighting or heard fighting. They live in an apartment complex. So as we know, you always hear fighting. Oh, yeah. It's very obvious. Especially the kid with the Drake concert in his closet. Yes, or crazy couple upstairs. Oh, yeah. That always walk around in high heels. We, yeah. I think we covered this before. It's it's strange. Like, like this a... morning, 7 a.m., heels. Why? What are you doing? I mean, heels it's are great, Tuesday. but uh, I don't know what you're doing up there for hours yeah. on end. But anyway. All right, it's fine. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Leanne was often seen leaving the house with her bags packed and not returning for weeks at a time. Although this seems really bad, things continued to get worse for the Barton family. In February of 1994, Michelle, who was two and a half at the time, told a daycare center worker that her father sexually molested her. So here is going to come a really tricky case for Child Protective Services to investigate this because of Michelle's age and, again, lack of, of physical evidence. It's really hard to determine whether or not this is true. I don't I don't want to say like I have insight into this, but as working in a daycare center for eight years, there were cases of sexual abuse that we saw. And in every case of sexual abuse that I witnessed at the daycare center, the child did say that something happened. Not in a way of like a, I'm telling, but this is so like changing a diaper. We see something and then they would say this happened. So it is, in my experience, the way that we found abuse to be true is a child saying that they were abused. And it is, it's it's heartbreaking, it's sad, but I don't think that a two-year-old is being influenced to say something unless it maybe was Bill Spivy, her grandfather, but I, I don't know. I just... Yeah, like, I, I, I want to be the, well, the second person to say that I never want to dismiss any sort of claim that a child or an adult says, but I, like you said, could the grandfather have had some sort of influence to try to get the children and yeah. getting Child Protective Services involved? But, I mean, I, it might be a little bit of a stretch, but like I said, I also don't want to dismiss a claim like that, you know? Yeah, and I think that law, um, well, Child Protective Services and law enforcement felt the same way. So what they're going to do is they're going to bring in a team of child psychologists to talk to Michelle and to try and figure out what this situation is. Because whether it's true or whether the child's being influenced, some type of intervention needs to take place in this family. So Michelle was interviewed by child psychologists and Barton also had to face a barrage of mental evaluations. A psychologist said that Barton was certainly capable of committing homicide. And during this time, Bill Spivy was fighting for custody of his grandchildren, like we said. But due to lack of evidence and age, all charges were dropped against Barton regarding the possibility of sexual abuse of his daughter. And he was able to keep full custody as well. So I guess based on their findings, there was no abuse. So the psychologist did talk further to Michelle. So 
whether this was planted information or I, I don't know. It's just it's very shocking. So it's right. But you got to say to yourself, too, like, OK, well, they followed the claim up. There was due process as far as like they, you know, like they did their due diligence. Yeah. They went and they like they got the police involved. They did their own investigation. They they came to terms with the fact that there was. No I do evidence. find it weird though that a psychologist is going to evaluate him, and say that he's capable of committing homicide, and they're just like, "Here you go, here's full custody," even though her m- mother was murdered. Right, but I, it's I, a little strange. I don't think that this particular person may might know the other events that took place before this. Yeah, but then... I, I don't think they have a whole entire case file. Yeah, but, like, a normal person being interviewed by a psychologist, the outcome isn't going to be, yeah, they would murder somebody. No, I get what you're saying. I it's, think it's just very strange, and it's going to be... In the context of whether or not the psychologist knew or not, the, the fact that his wife was murdered and mother-in-law was murdered and what he will do later, it's chilling to hear that's what a psychologist said about him. Well... I think that that person, he or she was a professional and they pick up on certain cues. So, I mean, maybe if for all we know, maybe that finding that, you know, that any findings was brought to someone's attention, a superior's attention, but maybe it just didn't hold enough weight to say, right. you know, these children shouldn't be here. You know what I mean? I know what you're saying. Like, it really, it was just what's that something very bizarre, but not enough to be like, okay, pull the children out, you know? Yeah. So at the beginning of this podcast, I discussed Barton's explanation of his childhood, college, career, marriage, affair, and divorce. Now, we all know that information because what is going to happen next in Barton's life? So Barton, although still a suspect in his wife's murder, cannot be charged because there's truly no evidence except loose circumstantial evidence and destroyed possible physical evidence. So because of this, he is going to attempt to cash in on that $600,000 life insurance policy. However, because of all of the bizarre circumstances, the agency holds an investigation and questions Barton about himself and his wife. And that's really where we got all that past information from. And after an 18-month investigation, the insurance agency decided in 1997 that they would settle with Barton for $450,000. They figured that a jury would have sympathized with the plight of Barton's children if the case ever went to court. So it could end up causing them more than the 600000 So let's just settle for four fifty, And Barton is going to agree. The only stipulation was that of the four fifty, $150,000 had to go into a trust for Matthew and Michelle. So Barton really was only going to get three hundred thousand, right? But three hundred thousand dollars is in, a lot of money. You know, at that time was a, a crap ton. Yeah. Yes. So suddenly, three hundred thousand dollars richer, Barton is going to make a sudden, drastic, and seemingly manic decision. But we know him; he's a risk taker, and he's going to leave the world of chemistry, sales, and manufacturing, and he's going to try his luck at being a day trader. Within one year, Barton becomes a full-time trader who dealt mainly with high-risk internet stock. It's pretty interesting, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, like like we said, from the start of all this, that's just been his 
I guess you can call it a character flaw or... He's a thrill seeker. Yeah, It's I his mean, fatal flaw. For some, it works. And it truly, truly does. I mean, you know, minus all the other bad stuff. But, like, for some people, that kind of behavior works. It's high-pressure yeah. situations. And some people are rich from that, you know? So, it has, it holds some sort of uh It seems benefit. like this day trading, especially within what he's going to be dealing with, is what's going to give him that like thrill seeking behavior like it's gonna like calm his thrill seeking behavior because now that he is married to leanne and they're living together there is no thrill in their relationship any longer right there's no secret like affair or anything like that so he needs that thrill in his life again so he's gonna move to day trading but i just we see that that is what he has to do because the family is still living in an apartment. There's four of them living in, in an apartment and to get $300,000, he could buy his family a lovely home completely paid off. But no, he decides to do this and invest it into his day trading, which he has no experience with. Yeah. But you know what? Back then, most people jumped to it because people were it. making so much money. Right. Yeah. Not to mention, oh, I'd like to add that not only does that kind of help him with his behavior of seeking thrills, but it also gives him a lot of free time because when you're a day trader, you're only trading from a certain, from a start time to, you know, to for a few time. hours. I mean, you're right. not, it's not all day. So you have a lot of free time. You're free spirited. You well, know? that's true because he did have two jobs at this point. He was in chemistry sales, but then he also had his own kind of firm that he started again. So this is going to free up a lot of time for him. So as Barton was trading, his actions within the day trading world became more and more risky. Between June and July of 1999, Barton is going to see his biggest hit when he loses $105,000 in just one week with the vital internet stock with Momentum Securities. By Tuesday of that week, July 27th, 1999, his account with the company is closed. When Barton contacts Momentum and asks to be reinstated as a broker, he was told that his debt would need to be paid in full before he could trade with them again. He asked if he could use his account with another trading firm. However, he was told that he couldn't. They needed a check for $105,000. And Barton tried to write a check to Momentum for 50000 on Wednesday the 28th. However, that very day, the check bounced. The next day, Barton would make the world pay. On Thursday, July 29th, 1999, a call came into police at 2.56 p.m. A woman told 911 dispatchers that there was gunfire in the third floor at the Momentum office. She said that a man had come into the office and shot people. The line was disconnected. Two minutes later, another call comes in. It's a man, and he's hysterical. He tells dispatchers that four were dead at Momentum. It was true. Mark Barton had walked into Momentum Securities Incorporated, which was on the third floor of the Buckhead office building. Barton said hello to those he knew, asking how they were, and saying that he was only there to make a few transactions. 
He continued chatting for a few minutes and then turned to one man and said, It's a bad trading day, and it's about to get worse. Barton took out two pistols and began shooting both of them at the same time. Police arrived to Momentum at 3 p.m., really only four minutes after the first call. Officers reported that there was blood everywhere. A thick trail of it was snaking down the hallway, almost leading them to the victims and the survivors. The officers began canvassing the office, making sure to carefully step over the victims who were lying on the floor. Eventually, the police found several people huddled in a small conference room where they had went to hide. One of the people in the room had thrown a computer out of the window to gain attention from those in the street. As soon as the officer found them, a woman sitting on the floor yelled out that it was Mark Barton. Mark Barton had shot them. The officers asked the survivors to stay in the room while they searched the remainder of the offices. There was a possibility that Barton was still there. And while the police searched the third floor of the Buckhead building, another officer circling the area on his motorcycle on Piedmont Road heard shots ring out from the Piedmont Center, and he stopped immediately and called for backup. It was 3.07 p.m. It's important to note here that Momentum Securities is located at 3500 Piedmont Road, and Piedmont Center, where the shots were heard the second time, is located at 3525 Piedmont. So it's entirely likely that as soon as he quickly shot those at Momentum, he basically just walked to the second location. So that's everything's in close proximity. So police obviously knew that these shootings, they, they had to be connected. Officers now rushed to the second location where shots were heard. Police arrived at Suite 215 in Building 8 of the Piedmont Center. They were confronted with the same scene as before. Several victims, no Barton. Lots of blood. A massive manhunt was now underway for the man responsible for the massacre that occurred in Atlanta's office buildings. The first place police are going to look is his house. But before we get into what they find at Barton's house, let's take a break to hear a word from our final sponsor today, Wix.com. So we want to tell you a little bit more about the awesomeness of Wix.com. In today's modern world, online presence means everything. Whether you're a big business or a newly inspired blogger or photographer trying to break through in the world of social media, your presence online means everything. So why not portray yourself in the best light possible? Wix.com can help you get there. Millions of businesses use Wix.com to create websites and instantly connect to their customers. All interactions are managed in one place using Wix.com's advanced business features. It allows you to automate your work, boost productivity, manage workflow, and easily hit your deadlines. Wix.com also understands the importance of customer relationships. They have added features which allow you to chat within your website, allow messaging to be sent and received in real time with your customers. You're even able to create and send pricing options to users and immediately start taking payments online using multiple options. So not only will you have a beautiful, professional website, 
but you will increase your online presence and productivity while building strong customer relations. Really, what business could ever say no to that? So you can get started with this today by going to Wix.com. That's W-I-X.com slash podcast to get 10% off. Wix.com slash podcast. Again, that's Wix.com slash podcast for 10% off. Okay, let's get back to the show. Barton and his family lived in an apartment 16 miles away from where the shooting of earlier that day took place in Stockbridge. When officers went into the apartment, it was silent. Barton was not there, but his family was. Matthew and Michelle were found in their beds. Sheets pulled up to their necks, only revealing their faces. A teddy bear was laid next to Michelle and a video game near Matthew. A handwritten note was found atop each child as well. Michelle's letter was addressed to my sweetheart and Matthew's my buddy. Upon moving their bodies, it was clear that the children were dead. The back of their heads caved in. Doing a quick sweep of the apartment, the police found another note, but this one was typed on Barton's beloved computer. Obviously left for them to read. The letter was written that day, time-stamped 6.38 a.m., and it read, To whom it may concern, Leanne is in the master bedroom closet, under a blanket. I killed her on Tuesday night. I killed Matthew and Michelle Wednesday night. There may be similarities between these deaths and the death of my first wife, Deborah Spivy. However, I deny killing her and her mother. There is no reason for me to lie now. It just seemed like a quiet way to kill and a relatively painless way to die. There was little pain. All of them were dead in less than five minutes. I hit them with a hammer in their sleep and then put them face down in a bathtub to make sure they did not wake up in pain. To make sure they were dead. I am so sorry. I wish I didn't. Words cannot tell the agony. Why did I? I have been dying since October. I wake up at night so afraid, so terrified that I couldn't be that afraid while awake. It has taken its toll. I have come to hate this life and this system of things. I have come to have no hope. I killed the children to exchange them for five minutes of pain for a lifetime of pain. I forced myself to do it to keep them from suffering so much later. No mother, no father, no relatives. The fears of the father are transferred to the son. It was from my father to me and from me to my son. He already had it and now to be left alone. I had to take him with me. I killed Leanne because she was one of the main reasons for my demise as I planned to kill the others. I really wish I hadn't killed her now. She really couldn't help it, and I love her so much anyway. I know that Jehovah will take care of all of them in the next life. I am sure the details don't matter. There is no excuse, no good reason. I am sure no one would understand. If they could, I would want them to. 
I just write these things to say why. Please know that I love Leanne, Matthew, and Michelle with all of my heart. If Jehovah is willing, I would like to see them all again in the resurrection to have a second chance. I don't plan to live very much longer, just long enough to kill as many people that greedily sought my destruction. You should kill me if you can. Mark L. Barton. That's a pretty intense letter to leave. Oh, it is. There's actually a lot that we learn from that letter, and there's so much to go into, so I just want to continue with the story, and then we'll go back to the letter and what it says. So shocked, the police checked the closet in the master bedroom, and it was correct. Leanne was lying on a pile of clothes. Another handwritten note laid atop her as well. We don't know what was in the notes that was kept private with the families. Police that were searching the Piedmont Street area received news that the man was not at home. However, his family was dead, and it appeared that he wanted police to harm him. FBI agents were called to participate in the search for the spray killer. The city of Atlanta and its surrounding suburbs were frozen in fear. Until Barton was found, it seemed senseless death could come upon anyone. Four hours passed before authorities heard from someone who had seen Barton. Four hours passed before authorities heard from someone who had seen Barton. Security officers at the Town Center Mall in Kennesaw, about 20 miles from Buckhead, saw Barton's unoccupied van in the mall lot at around 7.40 p.m. About the same time, a woman who had been shopping at Rich's approached her parked car. Barton walked toward her. He had a black bag that hung over one shoulder. He was wearing a neatly pressed blue short sleeve shirt. Don't scream or I'll shoot you, he said, according to the police report. The woman backed away. Don't run or I'll shoot you. She ran away, but he didn't shoot her. Barton, now in a new minivan, was spotted by drivers on Barrett Parkway who quickly called police. Undercover officers began trailing him, not knowing how this was going to pan out. At around 7.50 p.m., Barton turned off of the interstate onto Georgia 92 in Ackworth. Barton passed a service station on his left and turned right, just past the McDonald's restaurant. He then turned left and eased into a BP gas station. With everyone watching from the surrounding parking lots, police swooped in, locking the minivan and all possible exits. Guns drawn, police asked Barton to step out. Instead, Barton lifted his two guns. He raised a 9mm pistol to one side of his head and the forty-five caliber to the other. Then they heard the shots ring out. And just like that, Atlanta's most deadly shooting spree ended with Barton's head, or what was left of it, hitting the steering wheel at 7.55 p.m. During the three days of his killing spree, Barton killed three members of his immediate family, nine day-trading employees of Momentum and all tech investment groups, and then himself. 
not to mention the 13 others that he injured during, during his shooting spree. In the aftermath of the crime, a lot is revealed. The other shooting locations that Barton went to, Alltech Investment Group, is going to reveal that in the past year prior to the attack on the office, Barton had lost a little over 300000 meaning that the 105000 that he lost at Momentum was what pushed him over the edge. It was also relayed to media that Leanne and the young children were bludgeoned to death with a hammer. We found that out from the letter. Those who lost their lives at Momentum Securities are Edward Quinn, 58 years old, Kevin Dial, 38, Russell J. Brown, 42, Scott A. Webb, 30. Those who lost their lives at All Tech Investment Group are Alan Charles Tenenbaum, 48, Dean Delawalla, 52, Joseph J. Dessert, 60, Jamshid Havash, 45, and Vadi Wati Maralidhara, 44. A spree killing always shocks a nation. We're gripped with fear after one occurs, especially if it occurs somewhere near you. However, in most cases, when investigators and the media dig into one's life, it rarely ever comes out of nowhere. And with Barton, this was quite clear. Those who were related to Deborah and her mother believed that he was responsible for their death. Those who knew him and Leanne knew that their relationship was aggressive and plagued with drama. When you look at Barton's personality, his manic search for jobs, and his risk-seeking behavior, it's true that this was going to end badly if he didn't get what he wanted. And him losing all that money was a reflection of that. So we mentioned before that Barton was a family annihilator. And family annihilators are driven to kill their family for a number of reasons. Many times it's for financial problems. And the belief is that men who are family annihilators will kill their family because they've lost their ability to support them because that goes into the male ego identity. So that's something that's pretty obvious about Barton. But I think there's just so many fascinating things about this case. And I guess we could start with like the combination of did he murder his wife? Does the letter reveal that he murdered his wife or not? And the pushing over the edge of just not being able to hold up this like facade that he was trying to portray to the world. Well, let's start with did the letter reveal if he killed his wife or not? I think that in my opinion, there's no way he didn't kill his first wife or wasn't involved in planning it yeah so regardless if it was done by his own hand or not i think he did it i think i i don't know why people do that i think it's try to to try to save their image as much as possible well we saw him do it with the first job right when he went back and tried to protect his there was no reason that tlc manufacturing was cutting ties with him saying Okay, it was just like a like that's it. We're all just moving in different directions. He was the one who like aggressively went back to kind of erase all traces, then causing chaos. So I think it's the same thing here. Him going back trying to say, "Oh no, I didn't kill 
my wife and my mother-in-law. It's like there was no need to say it. So the fact that he did say it is kind of evidence to the fact that he did it. I mean, he definitely did it. Uh, He had his part in it if he didn't do it with his own hands. Right. I think he... I don't know if he physically did it because I think that would have been difficult while watching the children, but he may have hired someone to do so and then got the idea from them because the fact that Leanne and his children, he murdered them in the identical way that his wife and mother-in-law were murdered really plays, at least he got the idea of what the hitman did. Yeah, I think then if we're going to go by that, by what you said, let's say, then he did do it with his own hands and he did with the same manner. Now, even though... Or got the... I'm saying like maybe he got the idea from nah, the guy. No, nah, I don't. I don't believe that. Yeah. I believe that he did it with a hammer to them and then he did the same thing with the children. Or he just did it with a different blunt object the first time, but the, but it doesn't matter what object he used. He still bludgeoned them to death with it. Yeah. I think that he did it then. Like, like we, we know he did it, but it's like the letter reveals then, then that he did do it. Like, physically. Yeah. In my opinion. That he did it to his first wife and his mother-in-law, and then he did the same thing to his own children and his second wife. Um, as far as all the, all the people that he killed after that, I will say this, um, this case is kind of interesting because, um, my uncle is a commodities trader and, you know, might, might, might be, it might be a little different, but I know that he used to tell us stories of people going off the edge, uh, go, just jumping off the deep end, uh, when people think that they've lost it all. I know, like, I know a couple of my uncle's friends, I don't know the details, but I know there was at least one or two that unfortunately they committed suicide because they lost a lot of money. It's super, super high pressure, and I actually think that him being in a in a job with such high pressure actually did him a disservice. So, like, even though he was in it for risk reward slash you know behavior, I think it was too much for him to take internally. You, you mean Barton? Barton, yes. Yeah. I think Barton couldn't handle that type of pressure internally, like he thought he could. I think he didn't know what he was getting himself into. Yes. Because he was used to working in a completely different world than this. And he didn't understand the the psychological repercussions of being able to not only get $100,000 in a week, which is possible, but you have to be able to lose $100,000 in a week, which is also entirely possible. Once again, my uncle would tell me stories. He, him and a bunch of his friends, they would make a couple hundred thousand a day. But they had they had uh, the ability to lose it all, and they I think knowing that you can lose it all and make it is goes with the field and people understanding the job. But I think Barton didn't understand well, that's another thing. what the job entails, well, and that's another thing. Like some people can be brought up into it, and then they get to a point where they could try to understand the market. Like my uncle definitely worked his ass off and learned the the trade. Whereas Barton didn't know shit. I think he just expected to jump into it and be a master of yeah. it. Yeah, and that's what I'm saying. Like some people, like 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 for example, my uncle or other people that he worked with, maybe they were just suited better for it. They learned. They did it for years. They, uh, they took their bumps and their bruises. Yeah, he went full steam ahead I and also, lost a lot of money. I also think that, and it's funny to me that this is never really truly mentioned in the case, but Barton was dealing with highly risky internet stock 
And doing that in July of 1999, when we're on the cusp of the year 2000, would have been really bad. Of course, those stocks were going to take a nosedive. Everyone thought everything was just going to stop working. Remember? Yeah, that was like this uh, big revolution. <laughs> yeah, like the new millennium's coming. Yeah. Everyone thought clocks weren't going to know how to work. Like people were going crazy. Yeah. So it makes sense that those stocks are going to take a nosedive during that time. All he had to do was kind of like stay in there and not sell things. But it just seems like he lost everything and he went nuts. Listen, like the thing is, we're not in that world. But from what I know, with the little that I know, it's based you look at patterns, you do research. It's possible there's he did always, none of those things. Right, and there's always an ebb and flow of the market. Of right. course, that makes sense. So, but you know, you don't know. Maybe he didn't do any research. But no. you also should invest all your money in risky stocks. And that's what he chose to do. So I do understand and know that people have committed suicide over similar things. But this guy... For less. Because he... It could never be him. Like, it was never his fault. He had to take everyone down with him. Oh yeah, but and 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 that's the thing too. It's like people have killed themselves in a stressful environment like this for less. This guy was dealing with his own inner demons. Yeah, stress of his past life. Well, I think that the fact that he kind of did go off the deep end regarding losing all this money does also speak to the fact that maybe he did kill his wife because if your thought process now is, is I killed someone to get this money and now not only have I lost it all but another hundred thousand on top of that and now this 20 year old woman well obviously she's a little bit older is not going to be with me anymore because obviously I'm not providing the way that I had promised to like his world is completely caving in and that's what's happening. But I do think that he was at least involved in the murder of his wife. I mean, yeah, there's, no, there's, no, there's no proof. But I, I just think that for him to write in a letter, well, I know I've been caught red-handed here. I killed I, my family in my house. The same way I killed. Also, to be able to bludgeon to death an 11-year-old boy and a 7-year-old girl and then put them in the bathtub to drown them in case they survived... Is insane. Oh, yeah. It's... And it shows the callousness, and that's why he was able to go, unfortunately, and commit that that shooting spree in the workplace. Because he, if he did that to his family the nights before, then What was stopping him why. from taking other people's lives? Exactly. I, the, the only other thing I want to mention in this, because I think it's interesting, and maybe we overlooked it a little bit, or it could be nothing at all. But um, also, this is like, Food for thought for the audience as well. Do you think in that letter he referred to like his son, something that was passed down to him from his father? Do you think that they were he was hinting at like the possibility that his son could be like him? Well, I think that comes with a family annihilator and then um, the belief that you're killing your family to stop them from suffering in the future. What I took it as is that his father was in some shape or form abusive he explained his childhood as being rootless i think he didn't really have a good relationship with his father which is why he then tried to have a better relationship with his son but he said look even though i tried i've fallen short and this is what i've done so i'm trying to stop the cycle of it i guess and the killing of my son 
what he did was based off of what a family annihilators do. I guess. Yeah. It's because just, it's because just weird. he said I've inherited it from my father and now my son will inherit it from me. Meaning that this ability to be unable to be a good father. Right, because his father was his whole his whole childhood life was it couldn't take form because they were constantly moving all the time. Correct. I feel like like that's just me overthinking because it it's just so interesting. Yeah. You know? It's like it's crazy when somebody does leave a letter behind because you do you see a little deeper into them right before they're gone, and it's like you you kind of read that and you're like, wow, like what else could there could there be more meaning behind his words? But you know, it's definitely an interesting case because this goes beyond just the normality. I mean, I don't want to say normal, but a spree killer, you definitely see signs of it, but to have a to be suspected of murder before this is it just goes into the playing of how this spree killing took place and these workplace shootings that are going to happen a lot in the 90s was terrifying and the fact that someone could go to work and not know if they were going to come out i mean not to mention that 3 months prior to this was the the columbine shooting so the country was on edge and to hear that your kids weren't safe at at school and you're not safe at work. That's scary. And the public was, wasn't a bit of a panic. And this was just a terrifying thing to happen to the, all these people that had to pay consequences for someone else's inadequacies. And that's really what happened. Yeah. It's an interesting one. It is a really good case. All right, guys. So like always, if you like the podcast, you can um, like us on social media, True Crime Couple. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Giving us a review is always appreciated. And if you're feeling generous, you can donate to us at patreon.com slash true crime couple. All right. Bye, guys. Bye, guys.